Well, I'd like to draw your attention to verses 3 through 4 this morning. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now, last Lord's Day, we considered the question, what is unity? As we've been working through the book of Philippians coming to chapter 2, what is unity? And we noted that it is extremely important to establish a biblical definition of unity so that we are able to understand what Paul means when he is exhorting the Philippians in chapter 2. And we noted this, unity is not uniformity. Unity is not everybody looking the exact same and thinking the exact same on every single iota and every jot and tittle. There, is, there must be uniformity with the, within the, the realm of the fundamentals of the faith, those things which are not non-essential, but there is room for some disagreement within the body of Christ with those things that are non-essentials. And so, we looked at how it's not uniformity. We consider that it is not merely union. Just because you get together with somebody doesn't mean that you have unity. Just because um, a Protestant, someone who declares himself to be a Protestant, will get together with a Roman Catholic to fellowship, does not mean that they have unity. Because they have no unity based on truth. It is merely based on union. And that is not true unity. And as we looked at verse 2, we saw that Paul described unity as one mind, one love, and one passion. And we saw that it's as if Paul is painting a portrait of unity from verses 2 through 4. And the brush strokes that he's put on the canvas so far have given us something of a, of a, of a manifestation of this idea that Paul has of what unity looks like in the body of Christ. And we saw that, yes, it's one mind. Having one mindset, one similar purpose, one similar disposition, like Christ, that disposition of humility and selflessness and one purpose for the glory of God to live holy lives, to spread the gospel. And then we said it was one love. Having that love that is in God filling the church, that the church is loving one another, showing one another love. One passion, as that word one accord looks to the idea of fellow-souled, being co, uh, co-sold, having a similar passion for the things of God. And those were the brush strokes on the canvas that we've seen so far. Now today, I want us to look at the framing, you could say, of this portrait of unity. And we noted last Lord's Day that those, the framing is humility and selflessness. Humility and selflessness. That's really what Paul is describing in verses 3 and 4. You must have humility and you must have selflessness if you're going to have unity or you're going to maintain unity. Unity cannot be ascertained, it cannot be cultivated, and it cannot be kept without humility and selflessness. And so you may have what you think is unity because people seem to check check boxes off that they agree. But if there's not humility and selflessness... We do not have biblical unity. And Paul is about to bring us 
to one of the most glorious expositions of the gospel in all of the New Testament, isn't he? As we come to verse 5, the, this mind be in you. What is this mind? He's going to say, everything I've been saying about what's necessary in you for unity is exemplified, is manifested, is seen in the gospel of Christ as he came willingly to humiliate himself, leaving aside the atmosphere of his glory, taking upon himself human nature, coming to this earth, dying a cruel death to the obedience of his father out of love for his father and love for wretched, ungodly souls. And so Paul is going to show the Philippians, this is what this mind looks like. It's the mind exemplified in Christ Jesus. But before we get there, I want us to take time to really think through and meditate on Paul's words as he describes humility and selflessness. Those two things that are essential for unity. So as we come to verses 3 through 4, I want us to consider five principles Five principles of humility and selflessness. Five principles. So we begin with Paul's first principle. Do nothing with a spirit of contention. Verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife. Let nothing be done through strife. Strife, you could say, refers to aiming at outdoing others with a spirit of contention fueled by selfish ambition. Aiming at outdoing others with a spirit of contention fueled by selfish ambition. So let's take each one of those as they come. Aiming at outdoing others. Now, aiming at outdoing others is seen so clearly in the preachers that were at Rome that we read about in verse 16 of chapter 1. The one preached Christ sincere, of contention, excuse me, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. They're preaching out of envy and out of strife. They want to outdo the Apostle Paul. They're preaching out of contention, out of strife. The exact thing Paul is saying that must not be found among the Philippians was found in these preachers who were at Rome preaching to outdo the Apostle Paul. They didn't like the fact that his name was being spread around Rome, that he was being recognized, that there was a certain fame attached to the name of Paul. What about us who have been here in Rome for a long time preaching and we've never had this kind of of fame? And this man comes, and all of a sudden, all the people follow after Paul. So they want to outdo Paul. And so they're preaching against Paul. By strife and contention, they're seeking to outdo Paul, to outstrip him of his accomplishments. How often, though, do we act this way? And how often is this found within the church of Christ? How often does a man get up to preach fueled with the desire to preach better than somebody else. How often does that happen? And and I, I speak of one who, by experience, knows this to be the temptation of someone who stands in a pulpit. Fueled in a in some sense 
by a desire to be a better preacher than so-and-so, to outstrip so-and-so, to outdo so-and-so. That's exactly what Paul is talking about here. And how often do we do this in, in, our, in our, for example, think about our speech. We're talking to somebody, but we really just want to outdo them. We want to show how much smarter we are than them, how much better we are than them. How we talk about our homes. Maybe we have very nice things in our homes. Maybe we have more money than others. We have nicer furniture than others. And sometimes we'll have nicer furniture because we want to keep up with the Joneses next door. We want to have a better, uh, you know, a better garden out front because we want to outdo our neighbors. We want to outdo other people. And this is a spirit that can come in the house of God. What about in the place of prayer? Public prayer. On a Wednesday evening, we're praying. In the, door next, in the room next door, we're praying. Is there anything in our hearts that sometimes wants to outdo another brother who's prayed? Want to pray with more theological accuracy? Wants to pray with greater fervency than someone else? This is the kind of spirit that Paul is saying, if you have the spirit, you will never have unity. Aiming at outdoing others. What was the next part? With a spirit of contention. Strife. Contention. Strife is the idea of you are getting something accomplished through the power of your own flesh. Not by patience, by prayer, and by trust, but by the power of your own flesh. Let's say in a marriage, your wife's not seeing something the way you want her to, or husband, vice versa. And you want them so badly to understand you. You want them to understand where you're coming from. You want them to feel what you're feeling. And you've tried to explain it to them, and they don't understand it. And instead of leaving them graciously and praying over the matter and being gentle and meek, you say, I'm going to sit here all night with you until you get it. You're going to get it. You're going to understand this. What's wrong with you? Why can't you get it? Through strife. Through strife. Through the flesh. If you're doing anything through strife, drop it. Anything through strife, just quit. Don't do it. Don't try to get it done. Just, just quit it. If you feel your flesh rising up, your temper rising up, your frustration rising up, drop it. We ought to do nothing through strife. We ought to do nothing with a spirit of contention. And again, that's what the preachers in Rome were doing as they sought to outdo Paul. How are they doing it? I can tell you right now, they weren't doing it by, by sitting back and praying and just humbly preaching Christ. No, they were fueled by frustration, by envy, and they were trying in their preaching as much as they could to talk badly about the Apostle Paul so they could outstrip him of his accomplishments. They could outdo him. That must not be found in the Church of Christ. Third, fueled by selfish ambition. Why did those preachers act the way they did in Rome? Because they were ambitious. They wanted themselves to be exalted. They wanted themselves to be displayed. And we'll get more into that as we go on through this. But selfish ambition is a sin. The people of God ought to be fueled with great ambitions for the glory of Christ, not for yourself, for the glory of Jesus 
Christ. If the end of what you're doing is your own glory, you are absolutely antithetical to the gospel you profess to believe. Everything about what Christ did was in humility to glorify His Father. How can we profess to believe a gospel that lays us in the dust and ashes of our depravity and then seek to exalt this bag of filth? doesn't make any sense. And that brings us to the second principle. Do nothing for empty glory. Paul says... Let nothing be done. Let nothing. Hear that. Let nothing. Don't let anything in your, in your homes, in your, in your marriages, with your children, at church. Don't let anything, your jobs, be done through strife or vainglory. Do nothing for empty glory. Now, the word vain has the idea of empty. Empty. Worthless. Futile. Substanceless. The kind of glory that one seeks for when he seeks for his own glory is empty glory. It's glory that is a waste. It's totally worthless. And so Paul is saying, do not do things so that you can glorify yourself, seeking for empty glory, the display of yourself, because it's empty and it's worthless. And this, this is the essence of the flesh. Um, the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 5, 25 and 26, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So there's the life led by the Spirit of God. Now we are, who are saved have been regenerated by the Spirit. Now we do not walk after the flesh. We walk after the Spirit. But we still, don't we, wrestle with indwelling sin and that principle of sin that lies within us. And what is the essence of that principle of sin? What is the essence of that old man, the Adamic nature? What is the essence of it? Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. Desirous of vain glory is the essence of the sinful heart. Man, at the core of who he is, wants glory for himself. That is the essence of the sin principle that is within your heart. That is the essence of the old nature. Glory for me. Glory for me. Because what happens when somebody is converted? What's the fundamental change? Glory for God. Not I, but Christ. The loss says not Christ, but I. Isn't that exactly what happened in the fall? Adam, Eve, you could be like gods, knowing both good and evil. Oh, we could be like gods. Glory for me. I can exalt myself. I can receive the glory. That is at the root of that sinful principle in you. And so, when you're talking to somebody, and the way you talk to them is to display your intellect, to display yourself. It's not a small thing. It's not just a funny thing. It's an old nature thing. It's a sinful thing. It's an ugly thing. It's a wretched thing. We ought never to act to display ourselves. 
We are image bearers of God. We are to display God. What does Paul say in Philippians 1? I will magnify Christ. And you, you sang the hymn, not I, but Christ. It says, save me from myself. Oh, how we need to be saved from ourselves. We have such a longing. We have such a desire as sinful creatures to display, to glorify, to, to, to just spread out ourselves. We want ourselves to be known, ourselves to be recognized, ourselves to be lifted up. But oh, that God would make us such individuals that we don't care about ourselves. We're lost in Jesus. All we want is for Him to be glorified, Him to be magnified, Him to be exalted. Not I, but Christ in every thought, in every action, in every deed. And just how, how often do we boast of ourselves? I quoted the text on, on Wednesday and just been coming to my mind, let another man praise thee and not thine own mouth, a stranger and not thine own lips. We're not to boast of ourselves, to boast of our accomplishments. By the grace of God I am what I am. By the grace of God you are what you are. The Christian has a boast. God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. I will glory. I will boast. What will I boast in? I will boast in the glorious cross. I will boast in the gospel. I will boast in my Savior. I will not boast in me. I will not boast in myself. I will not live in such a way that I display, that I magnify, that I exalt me. Paul says, don't, don't do anything for empty glory. Because when you display yourself, it's empty, totally worthless. You have no glory. You're deceived. If you want to display yourself, you're displaying a wretch. You have nothing good to display. Anything good in you is from God. It's empty and it's worthless. Why spend your life? Why spend your life? on empty glory. Why spend your life for the glory of you when you could spend your life for the glory of God? You could be a conduit for the magnifying of the thrice holy God of heaven who wants to live and reign in you in such a way that you magnify Him, that you're a magnification of His glory, that you're a lens through which His glory is reflected and distributed and shown and shines through the world. Why would you take such a lesser purpose for your life? Why settle for something so low, so little, so empty, so vain? Live to magnify Jesus Christ, is what Paul is saying. Third thing, do everything with humility. He says, but, but, in opposition to strife and vainglory, in lowliness of mind, in lowliness of mind, the total opposite of the kind of mindset that is in the old Adamic nature that kind of mindset that seeks for its own glory, that does things through strife, is this kind of mindset. A lowly mind. A lowly mind. Now, the word lowly, we would understand humility. Humility, a humble mind. It's interesting to note that in, in New Testament times, the word we have here translated lowly, it, it's not found in classical Greek. Um, the word for humble found in Greek pre-Christian writers 
is, the word for humble is found in Greek pre-Christian writers, but it almost always carries, um, carries a undesirable connotation, something, something bad, something less than desirable. As if somebody who says they're humble is, is just kind of groveling to somebody. They, they, have, they have no honor in, in being humble. So to the Greek pre-Christian writers, humility is not something honorable. It's something dishonorable. It's something that is not desirable. And the reason for that is, is that to the Greek mindset, everything with, was anthropocentric. And what I mean by that is it was man-centered. Their whole philosophical outlook was man-centered, the glory of man, the exaltation of man, the furtherance, the progress of man. And so in Christianity, when the Greeks were converted in Christianity, you have a fundamental shift from a man-centered philosophy, a man-centered outlook, to a God-centered outlook. Man is no longer the center of the universe, Man is no longer the sun around which, everything, around which everything travels. No, now God is. Everything revolves around God. Everything springs from God, through God, to God. God is the center. God is the purpose, the highest good, the summum bonum, the supreme good of man is God. And so humility is at the very heart of what it is to be a Christian. And pride is at the very heart of what it is to be not a Christian. Because to not be a Christian is fundamentally to be man-centered, and to be a Christian is to have a shift, a seismic shift, to where now God is the center, God is the purpose, God is the supreme good, the highest good. And so, one person has defined humility in this way. It is the habitual frame of mind of a child of God. That of one who feels not only that he owes all his natural gifts to God, but that he has been the object of undeserved redeeming love and who regards himself as being not his own, but God's in Christ. He cannot exalt himself, for he knows that he has nothing of himself. So you see that humility is the fruit of believing the gospel. It's the fruit of becoming a Christian. You cannot be a Christian without having humility deeply etched into your heart because humility cannot coexist, excuse me, humility cannot coexist with a man-centered philosophy. Humility must be found with a God-centered outlook. And so when we come into the gospel, we recognize we are wretches, we are vile, we're deserving of hell, we've broken the law of God, we're nothing in and of ourselves. All that we receive is by the grace of God. Any goodness I have is from the grace of my Heavenly Father. And when we receive that truth, we cannot exalt ourselves because we realize that we have nothing of ourselves. Which is why Augustine said, that humility is the first, second, and third thing in Christianity. The closer a man or woman gets to God, the more humble they will become. The less they will want to display themselves. Because the closer they get to God, 
they will be lost in His infinitely dazzling glory. And they will be so disappointed with their infinitely disappointing hearts. They won't have any desire to display what they see has no glory. Their own hearts. The more you're lost in the glory of Christ, lost in the glory of God, your desire to display yourself will just start to wither away. It will die. Not I, but Christ. So we see that humility is the fruit of faith in Christ. It's the fruit of faith in Christ. You must lift up your eyes to behold the Son in His radiant glory. Meditate on Him, on His glory. And humility will be produced. And humility is absolutely necessary for unity among the people of God. Fourth. Fourth principle, regard others as better than yourself. He says, In lowliness of mind, out of this lowly, humble mind, now you act in a certain way. You look at the brethren in this way. Let each esteem other better than themselves. The meaning of the word esteem here um, is to give careful thought to something. This is what the word means. Give careful thought to something and arrive at a conclusion based on fact, not feeling. It has the idea of regarding, counting, or reckoning. So the Philippians are not told, although you know that your brothers and sisters are way less spiritual than you, way worse than you, you're just to kind of make yourself, you know, feel like they're better. Just kind of trick yourself, have a false reality. This word esteem has to do with making a conclusion based on careful consideration of the facts. And Paul is saying, when you look at other brethren, you are to actually consider them better than you. Now, of course, if a believer is backslidden, visibly, they have, it's, it's obvious, they have walked away from, from, from Christ, they've, they've fallen into a pattern of sin, of course this would not be uh, pressed on us. We would understand that we would see them as as not walking closely to Christ. But I'm talking about, what Paul's talking about, is believers at Philippi who, who are walking with Christ, who are in the place of, of meeting to come hear the word. They're, they're faithful, obedient members to the, of the church. And Paul is saying, when you look at those brothers and sisters, you are to feel about them that they're better than you. They're better than you. Let that sink in. That's a massive truth. Let, you, you need to look at them like they're better than you. So how does this work? What does he mean? How, how do we think that other brothers and sisters are better than us? What are we considering that leads us to the conclusion that they are better than us? Well, it grows out of this lowliness of mind. It grows out of an apprehension of the sinfulness of your own heart. You are the only person who has first-hand knowledge of your heart. You don't have first-hand knowledge of your brother or sister's heart, do you? You can look at them and you can make conclusions about where you think their heart may be, but you alone have first-hand knowledge of your own heart. 
You alone are privy to your own sin. You know how rotten your heart is. You know how rotten your motivations are. You know how twisted you are. You know that. When you look at your heart, and you know even when you come to the house of God, you are, you are overwhelmed with how you are tainted with sin, even, and you're singing, even in hearing the Word, and even the man is preaching. You're, we're aware. How can I be so tainted with sin? I wish I was free from this. And I look at my own heart, and I'm overwhelmed at my sinfulness. This is Paul's attitude. Listen to the way Paul talks about himself. Ephesians 3.8 Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints. Paul? What? Less than the least of all saints? Do you, brother or sister, feel that you are, the less, you are less than the least of all saints? Do you really feel that way? Or would you say, well, actually, if we're honest... I actually think that I am quite a good saint. I actually think I'm quite much more mature than that brother. I'm much farther along than that brother. And the reason for that is because you really are not more mature. And you really are not more spiritual. Because the giant of spirituality, the Apostle Paul, concluded, I am less than the least of all saints. Why? Because he had the fullest vision of Christ and the clearest sight of his own depravity. And he could only conclude, I am less than the least. Not only the least, less than the least. I'm a worm. I'm I'm lower than the lowest. Don't even put me in the same sentence with that brother. I'm so low. I'm so... Sinful, I'm so twisted. 1 Corinthians 15.9 For I am the least of the apostles. I'm the least of the apostles. I am not meet to be called an apostle. Oh, the humility of that man. I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. 1 Timothy 1.15 This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I'm the chief. Talk about any sinner you want to in this whole world. Paul would say, I'm the chief. I'm the worst. I'm the greatest sinner. I've done worse than anyone. I'm the chief. And this attitude can only come by tearing in the presence of God, by meditating on His glory, by knowing and enjoying Christ. And by that sight of Christ, we'll have a sight of ourselves. As Calvin said in his Institutes, we must have a right knowledge of ourselves, and we can only have a right knowledge of ourselves when we have a right knowledge of God. And if we have a true knowledge of God and faith in that knowledge of God, the fruit of that will be the abasement, the humility, the lowliness of our estimation of ourselves. How do you think about another brother or sister? When something happens and you don't understand why they're doing what they're doing, 
the person who has pride reigning in their hearts immediately lashes out. They did that for poor motives. They did that out of a desire to hurt me. They did that out of a desire to do such and such. But the person who Paul's describing here says, no, no, my brother would have never meant that. My brother would have never done that for that reason. He must have a good reason. He must have a good motive. Unless proven otherwise, unless I I have it from his own lips, he confesses his sin. I, I think the best of my brother. John Wesley gave a list of 12 rules for his preachers, and one of them said this, Believe evil of no man unless you see it done. Take heed how you credit it. Put the best construction on everything. Put the best construction on everything. So when you see another brother doing something, your knee-jerk reaction should be the best construction, meaning they must have right motives. They must just not understand such so-and-so. However, you would put that into, the, into words. But how often is our knee-jerk reaction, he meant this, or he was trying to do this, or he was sinning, or whatnot? How often do we do that? And, and so in the Church of Christ, we have brothers and sisters thinking that they are more spiritual maybe even the most spiritual than others, becoming frustrated with other brothers and sisters with what they're doing because they're not esteeming them better than themselves. They're not looking at that brother or sister as better than themselves. This must be our attitude if we will have unity. This has got to be the attitude if you're going to have unity in your marriage, if you're going to have unity in your home. I know this very well. How often... Does this happen in a, in a home, in a marriage, in a family? Uh, a husband or a wife does something, and the husband or the wife doesn't understand why they're doing what they're doing. And immediately the first thought is, they don't love me. And so bitterness is cultivated, isn't it? Bitterness festers in the heart. And they never say anything about it. Because they don't, they don't want to say anything. Maybe they're afraid or they're, they, they feel like they can't say anything. But they don't love me. And that's cultivated in the heart. But unless there's good reason, very clear reason to say otherwise, and if it is, you must go to that brother. You ought to think of him, oh, he didn't mean it that way. There's no way his motives were evil or wrong. I, I, I'm nothing in, in my spirituality anyways. I'm just going to pray that God would, would help me and, and would help them. That must be your attitude. Regard others better than yourselves. Finally, fifth, don't be consumed with yourself, but concern yourself with others. Look not every man, verse 4, on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. I saw an acronym the other day, which blew me away, F-L-Y, FLY. And the text underneath it said this, First, love yourself. First, love yourself. Others will come next. FLY, F-L-Y. So if you're going to soar through life, if you're going to have joy, real delight in life, first, love yourself. Absolutely antithetical to the gospel and to what Paul is writing here in Philippians 2. It is not first love yourself. It is first love others. The self-centered life 
as we said earlier, is the life of sin. It's the life of the old man. This self-centered disposition is, is, is totally prohibited by the Apostle Paul and by God. We are not to live for ourselves. It's not about you. It's not about me. We're not to live for ourselves. This self-life that asks, what's best for me? What's in it for me? How am I going to spend my money? Well, what's best for me? How am I going to spend my time? Well, what's best for me? Where am I going to go to church? Well, what's best for me? How was your service today? Well, did I receive a lot today? What's best for me? That's the question that is constantly asked the self-centered individual. And this is the root of disunity. Such a, a festering root that needs to be plucked out. You think of how much disunity is caused by people not getting along with others because they haven't received something that they want from them. Or they haven't received from coming to church where they feel like they ought to receive from them. Now may I say also, be careful there to say, that doesn't make it okay if others aren't giving them what they should have. They're not showing them love. But the first thought in somebody's mind shouldn't be, what am I going to get? It should be, what am I going to give? How am I going to give? How am I going to give? And it does, again, it doesn't mean, if, if you're not being treated well by somebody, you, can, you should just let that, you, you should approach that person, you should work through that. And the person who's not treating the other individual well needs to repent. But the first thought on someone's mind shouldn't be, what's in it for me? Marriage? What's in it for me? My, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with my wife because she's not as attractive as she once was. What's in it for me? I don't like the kind of food she makes. What's in it for me? She doesn't respect me the way that I feel she should. What's in it for me? It's not about what's in it for me. It's not about what's in it for you. It's not. It's about what can you give. It's about others. It's about your wife. It's about other individual members in the church. It's not about you. It's not a self-centered life. It's about others. And so that's why Paul says, look on the things of others. Look on the things of others. And this is what he's going to do as he goes through the gospel of Christ is show how this was the heart of Jesus Christ. Anybody could have been frustrated with a sinful, rebellious, constantly whining people. It would have been Jesus Christ. And yet He came to save them. He didn't think of Himself. He didn't count His own equality, as the text says in the original Greek. He didn't count His equality with God as something to be grasped. It says in our, our version here, as, uh, didn't, didn't take it as robbery, think it robbery to be equal with God. It means he didn't think his equality with God, he didn't think the atmosphere of his glory, the praises of heaven, the blessed shining and dazzling of his glory in heaven as something to be grasped at. His glory as something like some emperor to be hoarded, to be greedily pulled in for himself. But he was willing to let go of that, to leave the dazzling glory of his atmosphere in heaven for the humiliation of union with a human flesh and a human body and a reasonable soul. He was really willing to do that. Why? Because he wanted to save his church. Because he loved others. He was thinking of your good. He was thinking of my good. Isn't that what the Bible says? 
2 Corinthians 8, 9. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that through His poverty might be rich. For your sakes. Not for His sake. For your sakes. That's the Spirit of Christ. That's the shape of the Gospel. For your sakes. And didn't Paul also embody this? He says in 2 Timothy 2 verse 10, Therefore, I endure all things. And he's speaking of tremendous suffering, tremendous opposition, tremendous pain. For the elect's sakes. That they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul is saying, I do not live for my sake. I have lost my life. And understand, you will never find freedom. You will never find joy when you live for yourself. You will truly find satisfaction and freedom when you lose yourself and you live for others. You live for the glory of Jesus Christ to be magnified in the spread of His gospel. That's truly living for others. Because the more you live to magnify Christ, the more you're living for others. Why? Jesus Christ is the joy of all people. If you live to make much of Jesus, you are living for the good of men. If you live to make much of Jesus, you are living for the good of men. You are living for others. Live not for yourself. Don't think and count when you make decisions, what about my comfort? What about my safety? What about what I can get from this? Lose yourself. Like Jesus, coming forth from His glory, blazing love, impelling Him to lay down His glory, to lay down His honor, to come to earth, to humble Himself, to be put on a cross, to be spat on, to be crucified, to be bloodied and put into a borrowed tomb for your sakes. For your sakes. What are you willing to do for their sake? What are you willing to do for the brother's sake who sits in the pew or sister behind you? What are you willing to do for the lost sake? What are you willing to do for Christ's sake? Not for your sakes. The Christian life, you see, is not an inward life. When we think about God, God is outward, not inward. The self-centered individual is like the devil. The devil is, is totally consumed with himself. And he wants all people to give him something that he lacks. He's not satisfied in himself. He needs worship. God doesn't need worship. God's satisfied in himself. He's infinitely happy. He doesn't need worship. He delights in it. He delights to flow out of his own goodness and abundant glory. He delights to flow out of himself so that his creatures would be full of the fullness of God. They would know him and enjoy him. The person who is God-like, he doesn't need, he doesn't need people to lift him up because he's satisfied in God. He doesn't need people to respect Him, need people to do all these other things for Him. He just simply delights in, in letting the glory of Christ flow out of Him to everyone else. I think of John seven thirty eight. He that believeth on Me, as the Scriptures have said, out of 
His belly shall flow rivers of living water. The Spirit of God has come to live in you. And what is the direction of that spiritual life? It's out of, out of His belly shall flow, out of shall flow, not not into, but out of. We're not like the Dead Sea. We have a lot of Dead Sea Christians sometimes, don't we? Everything's flowing in, and everything's dead. But we don't need Dead Sea Christians. We need Christians whose lives are out of. Become so full of God, so full of Him, that you are living a life that is out of that, flowing to the lost and needy world, flowing to your brothers and sisters in Christ. So, as we come to the end of this section, Paul gives us a portrait of unity. We have learned this. If these principles are not found in the church, we will never have or maintain unity. Contention has to go. Empty glory (coughs) has to go. We have to cultivate humility. We have to regard others better than ourselves. We must not be consumed with ourselves, but concerned with others. And all of that is the result of looking unto Jesus. And when we have that framing, we'll be able to keep one mind, one love, and one passion. That is Paul's idea of unity. That is the biblical understanding of unity. Let's seek the Lord that we might cultivate it, that we might know it. Our Father in heaven, we come before thee, our hearts convicted by your word, thanking thee that the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Lord, we pray that thou wouldst bless thy people. Help us through the Spirit to mortify the deeds of the flesh. For Jesus' sake, amen.